welcome to the Premium Property Podcast. Today we're here with Scott Williams. He's a young up-and-coming property investor from Crew. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure to be on here with, with you guys who are obviously making the right noises in the right space and I'm super excited to see how you guys get on with your property journey and, and entrepreneurial journey, of course. Thank you, Scott. That's some kind words from yourself. So, um, tell us a bit about yourself and your background before property. Sure, so before property, uh, I was in college, so ever since leaving college, I I went straight into property, working as an apprentice, Uh, worked for a multimillionaire guy, got rich in telecoms, wanted to start investing in property, so had a good ground in there, really exposed to the sort of business side of, of business, obviously and also the property side as well in terms of managing trades, seeing how the refurbs work, etc. Et so yeah, I had a really good sort of grounding, but before that, college, BTEC sport, nothing exciting. Uh, thought I was going to be a professional footballer as, as all uh, young lads that are semi-decent at football do, uh, but unfortunately that never uh, amounted to anything. That's great. So obviously you're still fairly young. So would you say that you've always had that entrepreneurial mindset? Uh, I guess, no, the answer is, well, in, in a roundabout way. Uh, I mean, through school I was selling sweets, I was doing bits like that, but I never really considered that as being a business venture. I always just saw that as, you know, a bit of extra cash and just to go and do what I sort of did. But I guess in the back of my mind, I've always sort of been interested in business and finance, but not really focusing on growing businesses, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, did you have the interest in property when you were in college and school, or did that really start developing when you got the apprenticeship? That really started when I got my apprenticeship. Yeah, before that, I didn't... I can't say, I can't recall I ever thought about doing property until I actually uh, had my apprenticeship, no. Okay, so what made you go into that apprenticeship? Was there a certain thing you liked? Uh, I liked the diversity of what was available. So for someone like me, I'm quite... My my attention span thing is very short. So I, when I get new ideas for about a month, I absolutely smash those ideas and then I get bored. Whereas in property... There's so many different ways of doing something. There's so many different ways of looking at something that there's so many options and it's, it, it's constantly moving. There's no month is the same. It's always a different. I'm looking at a different deal. I'm trying to raise finance for another deal. I'm selling a deal. I'm trying to find a tenant. There's just so much variety to it. Um, so that's sort of what drew me to it at the beginning in terms of that variety and there was a site over here, site over there sort of thing. So when you were in school um, and college, um, how beneficial was that with your entrepreneurial ventures and what also did your friends think when you went into the uh, property industry? Sure, so in terms of, so school has been a massive part and I think it is a massive part of everyone's life because if you look at it from the perspective of them actually having a lesson on managing your finance or communicating or negotiating, they don't exist, but if I was getting in trouble, I would always try and negotiate with the teacher, I would try and blame someone else, I'd try and talk my way out of it. So in a way, my communication skills were developed in school. Um, equally, 
my social group, I was someone that knew quite a lot of people, but spent very little time with specific people. So I, you know, walk around school, I'd know quite a few people, but I wouldn't spend a lot of time with a specific group of people. Um, so again, that kind of developed my networking skills in terms of speaking to different people from different walks of life. Um, so I think school has been a massive foundation for me to build on. Um, but in terms of my actual education and sitting in lessons, I've learned more in the past few years that I've been in the entrepreneurial life than I ever did in school in terms of knowledge, in terms of education, in terms of the real nitty-gritty stuff. Yeah, I guess as much as most of us hate school, it does build those communication skills, build you into a good adult, really. I, I agree. I think it's a, it's a diverse way of looking at school because if you do look at it from the perspective of GCSE, I can't say I've ever applied algebra to, to any property valuation, um, but it, it's what comes with school and it's the community, it's the, the teachers, it's your lessons that you learn, it's, you know, and, and I was one that never really passed any GCSEs in flying colour, so it's almost an effect learning from failure as well because I, I didn't do very well in school, so and it didn't really bother me that much. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what did your school friends and families think about you getting into property at such a young age? Yeah, so, um, my friendship group has completely changed since I left school. Uh, so, I had a great uh, group of friends, but they chose a different path to what I chose. So, they enjoyed going out on the weekend. I didn't. I enjoyed working. Not all of them do. Um, and there was kind of a level of misunderstanding and, and equally when I was trying to save money it, again they just weren't on they they didn't understand why I was doing that or it'd be like oh you know Scott's Scott can't pay for that because he's he's been savvy with his money sort of thing um so I had all those sort of comments but I still if I see them on like out and about I'll still talk to them as if you know it was we'd never been apart sort of thing and um, but now I've got a group of friends that are on the same journey as me, they understand property, they understand business, they understand the, yeah, they just basically get it, they get the message, they understand the journey, and they're sharing that journey with me. Yeah, that's great. It's great to have a good network of people around you that can give you support, I guess. So, um, we know you've got a business partner, Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. How did you meet him, and how did you guys become business partners? Yeah, so it was actually a property event, uh, Stoke uh, Property Investor Network, and he, well, I was introduced to him as a deal sourcer, which I, I wasn't, but um, yeah, basically, uh, Matt was very successful in a previous career, and he had an affiliate marketing business, he sold his shares and started to invest in property. Um, my sort of headaches and where I was sort of being sure is I didn't have any finance but I had the knowledge whereas Matt had the, the finance but not so much the, the knowledge so that's how the partnership came about. Uh, it initially started, I was looking at one of his projects and I said oh you know you should do this as a HMO um, I can help you know make it into a five bed all on suite, I can help with compliance etc etc, help you get it through the line. Um, and that's kind of where it all started to, to snowball from. So, we've discussed that you've had an apprenticeship with a property developer. What, like, three key skills did you learn from that? Uh, sure, so, I learned, 
the answer to that question is the key the three key things were more to do with business than property but for this podcast i'm going to talk about the property uh three tips so firstly that tradesmen are a nightmare and whether you're at the top of the level bottom of the level wherever you are there's always going to be issues with tradesmen even if they are brilliant so that was number one that was my first big lesson uh, number two was to probably not bite off more than you can chew, which I kind of contradicted myself on that because last year I probably did do a little bit of that. But the person that I worked for, we had four sites that were currently running, were, well, at the time they were running, and it took around about three years for one project to be finished, about two and a half for another project to be finished, and I'd say a year and a half for, for another project to finish. But I must say that I left after nine months, so I'd probably say that's probably the uh, <laughs> the cause. But <laughs> um, And the third one, I guess the management of sites, that's super important in terms of who's going in, when they're going in, and why they're going in. So... Obviously, it's going to be rip out, first fix, plasterboard in plaster, second fix, etc., etc. However, when I was working, because telecoms, the business that the millionaire guy was this running was a telecoms business, so property was second to that. It was more of an asset investment build. So their experience was very different. So they didn't understand the process of when tradesmen should be there, what should be next, etc., etc. So that was a, another uh, lesson for me, definitely. Yeah, they're three good tips, to be honest. So you said one of their tips was tradesmen are a nightmare. So um, what would advice would you give on finding good tradesmen and managing them well? So I think it's a really difficult question to answer because I have really good tradesmen. There's so many different areas in trade, you've got joiners, you've got plasterers, you've got sparkies, you've got plumbers, there's there's such a variety of people that you need within your team and it almost falls to, you have a selection of very good tradesmen that almost drag along the not so good tradesmen but equally you're going to have to kiss a few frogs to find the correct tradesmen that work well for you, understand how you work, so being property developers, you know, we're, for example the carpet fitters we gave them a de- we gave them a specific date which we have to get because we don't know if the plastering or the painting is going to be done in time for them to fit the carpet. So that then affects the carpet fitter's ability to fit a carpet if I've still got tradesmen in that are painting and decorating, say for example. So there's a fine line of finding tradesmen that understand that process and are open-minded to you. You might not be ready on Monday and it might be Wednesday, so they might have to move things around. But equally, finding tradesmen that are good and the quality of work is good. And the, the main lesson that I've learned during this, my, my short career as a property investor is that the cheapest quote is not always the best quote because you do pay for what you get and that is reflected heavily within the trade industry. Yeah, so with your tradesmen and your refurbs, do you use single tradesmen for each different job or do you have a building company which hires the subcontractors? Yeah, so 
currently we have uh, one building company, so it's two lads, a Bricky and a Joiner, and they were working together, but unfortunately that relationship didn't sort of work out. So we do employ a builder or builders to run and manage the site. So they look after uh, the tradesmen, they look after the schedule of works, they look after the health and safety on site, and uh, predominantly they look after CIS tax, which is something that needs to be paid uh, to subcontractors. So your principal contractor, you can avoid CIS tax, but if you're paying subcontractors, so you're paying the joiner, you're paying the electrician, you're paying the, the plumber, then you need to deduct CIS tax, which is 20%, which your accountant, if you have an accountant, should be able to help you with. So is CIS tax, is that something that you pay on top of the contractor's wages? So we personally don't. So we pay a principal contractor, and then when they pay the subbies, they are supposed to deduct 20% from that pay, which is then given to HMRC. So when the subcontractors then do their tax return, if they're owed money by HMRC, they can retrieve the money, or predominantly, if they owe tax, that's offset against their tax. So basically, the HMRC brought it in to stop tradesmen from avoiding tax, in, in a nutshell. Yeah, sure. So when did you first start out in property and what age and what really made you get into it? So I started out uh, 2016. I was 18 at the time and sort of reflecting back to obviously the, the previous conversation, it was really the diversity of, of property that really got me into it and also the sense of I kind of found my passion. I can't explain what finding your passion is like because otherwise I'd write a book and sell millions of copies but it, it's almost it, it makes you want to get out of bed in the morning there's there's no day is the same and there's always that kind of ambition to do more and do better because there is so much opportunity out there with, with property whether you're looking at land whether you're looking at flips HMOs SA rent to rent there's just so much out there that you can throw your mitts at and the process is very very similar so you can apply what you know in HMO in terms of marketing in terms of tenant um, looking after tenants and then SA again marketing Airbnb looking after guests they kind of there's very there's a lot of similarities there and that's what really draws me to, to property and and so I've been yeah four years now I think yeah 2016 four years in December I think that's right. I'll lose track of time. <laughs> <laughs> so, when you first started in property, were you obviously you were quite young? So, were you doing deals yourself, or were you working with investors? My career path was I worked for the property developer guy. So, obviously, I was working on his deals. I was a tradesman rather than a so I was a multi-skilled tradesman. So I was working on site. I was basically a very cheap labour. I was paid three pound thirty an hour. I was just moving blocks. I was making mortar. I was, you know, I was doing everything that a labourer basically does. Plus, also trying to manage trades on site, and they were semi trying to manage me as well. It was very complex the setup. Um, I then moved away from property and realised this is something that I want to do. So I went into High Street Letting Agent, uh, where I learned about residential lettings you know, that, that side of the, the business and then left there, got myself trained as an energy assessor, uh, so I do EPCs and then went back into HMO lettings and, and HMO deal sourcing them, 
which I kind of didn't realise that I was a deal sourcer, but I was doing that for someone else, just out and about trying to find suitable investment properties for people. And then I came across Progressive, and that's sort of where I started to learn about how to raise finance, how to source deals, how to, you know, that, that side of the business rather than the tradesman side and the actual rent, the, the letting side and that sort of side. Yeah, so with your background as a tradesman and the energy assessor, do you still use those skills now on your projects? Um, yeah, so the trades, I mean, I don't know as much as the builders know, so I lean on them for advice and what they think is best, but I know the very basic level of what should be done and the timeframes that it should be done in. And equally, I'm more practical-minded than I am theory-minded, and building work is very practical, so I pick up on things quickly, whereas Matt is more theory. He, he doesn't understand... Well, he, he does understand building work, but probably not to the level that I do, but that's because he knows... He, he can remember, you know, fine details and, and that side of it, whereas I'm more practical and I understand builds and, and the processes and the strategy. That's, that's sort of my strength. Um, and in terms of my experience with residential lettings, that gave me a more of a business uh, overview, how to manage tenants, how to manage you know, investment properties, etc., etc., sort of things like that. Obviously, you had a good background before you went into property. Do you think that helped accelerate your success when you went out and started your own business yourself? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's good for people, not just myself, to get a variety of experiences within different fields, within potentially the same industry, but that's sometimes difficult. But to then collate everything that you've learned from different people and then make that your own thing by using what you have learned with other people, but taking the best from the, you know the best traits from the best people and not so much the bad traits from, from those people as well, because everybody has good traits, bad traits, but having that variety of experiences is key for, for most people to then take into business or property or anything to, to do with entrepreneurship, really. Yeah, yeah. So would you advise someone that's just starting out to maybe get that experience first before they went in on their own? Definitely, definitely. There's, there's there's two ways to to be successful in, in in entrepreneurship or property, and that is that you go out, you try and work things out yourself, you educate yourself. You, it's it, it, to be honest with you, I would personally say that that's the long route. But the other route is that go and work for people that are more experienced than you. Just stay close to people that are super experienced, like what you guys are doing. You know, you, you're out. You're working for a letting agent on the weekend. You're on social media trying to meet with with people that are you know doing well. Rich Parks, Luigi. You know, there's there's those sort of people you're going to learn a huge amount from, and that's what people listening to this podcast should be doing. They should be mirroring what you guys are doing, starting podcasts on social media, speaking to the right people, and that's how you will become successful in the long term. It's all about network, I guess. Definitely. How old were you when you did your first property deal and what strategy was it? So, unfortunately, I was 23 at the time, but only by two weeks. 
So I should have been 22, but I was 23. Um, and that was a HMO deal. So it was a three-bed mid-terrace that we've now turned into a four-bed with an ensuite shower room and WC. And in a nutshell, purchase price is 65000 refurb was 35000 including furniture. And the refinance was 115000 It's a good deal for a first deal then. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Uh, there was a lot of learning curves along the way. We unfortunately got paired with a, a not-so-good builder. Um, referring back to you got to kiss a few frogs. And unfortunately we did. So, yeah, it was a, an experience in terms of understanding and spotting red flags early on with tradesmen. Yeah. So, did Matthew fund that deal and then you put the time in? That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, predominantly, but Matt equally put uh, a lot of work into that deal as well. Um, so, he's, he is very hands-on. He kind of only sees the money as a way to move the business forward and he is as involved as I am um, so that's sort of been key for to developing the business the way that we have it wasn't that we went into a joint venture partnership it was we went into a business partnership and we wanted to grow and scale the business rather than just him putting the money in and sitting back and, and watching it happen we wanted to, to really grow this thing yeah yeah I guess it's good that you both have those similar drives and passions. Both work on similar tasks within your business or do you have set tasks between you? Um, not really. So in terms of property stuff, Matt is very good at materials, sorting out logistics, operational stuff, whereas I'm more better at managing tradesmen managing situations that might be compromising to the business, um, the strategy side of things, moving things forward, and much more of a sort of operational thinking, theory thinking, tasks, and um, he's very good at, if, I give him, if we set out a list of tasks, he's very good at just smashing through the tasks, whereas I get bored of something like that. So that's where our differences sort of come in. How did you go about working out what your strengths were between each other? So, we, in a sense, were very similar because we get on really well, although we probably do each other's head-ins occasionally, but <laughs> that's like any relationship. It is a little bit like marriage, if, if that's what marriage is like. I can only imagine, but yeah. Um, so, we did the Wealth Dy Dynamics test when we were probably about three months into the business partnership. Um, in a sense, we've been very lucky that our personalities have not clashed and we're very different people um, because I know people rush into business partnerships and it doesn't sort of work out for them because they're too similar, they're, they're too the same, they don't agree with this, they don't agree with that. Whereas me and Matt are very different and yeah, so we just worked really, really well. So there's the Wealth Dynamics test. Matt's a bit of an all-rounder, whereas I'm more towards the star supporter and deal-maker, that sort of side, and he is very much just an all-rounder, really, and he's more analytical than, than I am. So I guess it's good to get that established early on. Definitely. So um, when did you start Amplo Property and Lettings, and how many people are currently within the company? Yeah, so we started Amplo Property 
I think officially, officially March last year, um, and really started to, to push the, the boat out, really, the June time when we first, when, when we bought Richard Street, which is our first project, that's really when things started to, we started to put more time in, basically. Um, so currently there's, there's myself, there's Zoe Conant as well, who is our lettings director, so she's a shareholder in the lettings business, um, as well as me and Matt, so she is pretty much driving that forwards in terms of the multi-let management, single-let management and finding new landlords and then also managing our stock. And then Matt, obviously, who we spoke about, and then obviously the builders, subcontractors and, and that sort of thing, but they're not really a part of the team, they just come and go as we need them sort of thing. So at the moment you've only got Zoe on the letting side, would you be looking to grow that business and employ more staff in the future? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we've had the conversation today about making sure that we're putting an information pack together. So when we're doing tasks such as booking a tenant viewing, we're recording it on our screens for them to put into a file. So when we do employ someone, we can just say, here's how you book people on to go and view a property click into this file and just watch this video. Or this is how you put together an AST or you know anything along those lines. So we are trying to build that pack before we actually need the employee. We're trying to build that information pack. So when we do, we're in a position to just go, right, here's everything you need to know. Let's get you on board and let's get you established without Zoe having to spend you know eight hours a day trying to teach them stuff. Yeah, I guess it's just having that planning in place for when it does eventually happen. Definitely. So um, we know you have multiple businesses. How do you go around juggling your time between them all and just really selecting on what to do? Sure. So the property side is more my thing. And the e-commerce side, um, obviously the luxury brand stuff, is more um, Matt's side. However, we do cross over into to both businesses. So managing time, I have a diary structure that I've got scheduled. So it, it's usually in half an hour or an hour intervals where I set tasks to do. And then I, I'm not religious. I don't stick to that, you know, religiously. I'm not by the, the hour, but I'm near enough. I know what my tasks are for that day. And if I don't complete a task, I'll move it to the next day. So that's how I sort of build and manage my time is by just managing my diary basically which is done just through Google Calendar so straightforward. In terms of managing your time do you ever feel like you're caught between managing your business and your personal life and do you ever feel like one takes over? Um, yeah 100% it's the, the saying goes it's, it's the perfect imbalance and that's kind of how my life has been. So I, I'm very much committed to, to business. But the way that I perceive it is that if I was to become a professional footballer, I would be dedicating my life to training every day and working every day and learning, you know, improving my game every day. Or, you know, a, a better version of that is say I'm running the 100 metres and I, I am training from 8 o'clock in the morning until 8 o'clock at night to win the gold medal at the Olympics. Business is exactly the same. You have to be super committed or there is no point in participating unless you want small results. But that's normally on the basis that it's someone that's really experienced, they understand the business 
and they know how to make money from the business. Whereas someone like ourselves, who are young and not, don't have that kind of experience, we need to be working harder. We need to be doing the 60 hours a week. You know, it, it need, needs to be putting the time in. But in terms of having the balance, it kind of fluctuates between me being really involved in my personal life and not being involved in business and then really being involved in business and not being so, so much my personal life. Um, and that's kind of the, the perfect imbalance. Yeah, so do you take regular breaks from business and property? Um, do you know what? Over Christmas time, I've really started to realise that having breaks is super important because the back end of last year, I've really sort of started to burn out in terms of I'm slowing things down, I'm not motivated, I'm not pushing things forward the way that I, I usually do. Um, so now I'm sort of dedicating a Sunday or sort of Saturday afternoon to really just switch off and just numb my mind basically, whether that's spending time with my partner or playing Xbox, which I still do, or watching Netflix. Yeah, so I guess having those regular but short breaks is the key really. Yeah, definitely, because it, it, it can get overwhelming when you've got so many tasks to, to think about and then you start to get to a position where you're like, have I done all the tasks that I'm meant to be doing? And you start to get overwhelmed and anxiety starts to kick in. Whereas if you have a bit of time to just reset your mind and then just look from the perspective of, right, I've, I've chilled out for a bit, what are my tasks? Let's move forward. Whereas before... It, there wasn't really that balance. There was no cut-off period. It was like, oh shit, I need to keep moving forwards. I need to keep going, and it, it, it burned me out basically. Similarly to that, how important is personal development to you, and what helps you improve on that? So personal development has been the key to my success. So I found Jim Rohn about three years ago, and his saying is, if you work hard on yourself you'll earn a full work hard at your job, you'll earn a living. And that is 100% what I live by every single day. So I'm never interested in how much money I'm going to earn. I'm always interested in what can I learn from this. And having that mindset and outlook on life will, I'm sickly at our age where we are, well, you guys are younger, but where we're sort of learning and starting to understand things, the money is you know, still living at home, still with parents, like money's not an issue. If you need to find 500 quid to pay a few bills, you'll, you'll find that money. Whereas finding experience and education is 100% a priority for, for myself still, even now. Um, so having that perspective and personal development, yeah, you 100% need to be working harder on yourself than you do at your job because just following that will make you successful in the long term because you know you are your biggest asset and and that's that's the the truth and the reality of it yeah definitely so when you were working for your the property developer and the lettings agency were you spending time working on yourself and your personal development yeah so when i uh, when i joined the letting agent that's when it really kickstart uh, kick-started that's when I was really focusing on <coughs> excuse me when I was really focusing on improving myself and educating myself because I would literally 
drive from the house to work just listening to Jim Rohn, Will Smith, Tony Robbins, and then driving back. That's all I'd be listening to. And I was literally just driving in a 2004 plate Fiesta thinking one day this, this will be a Ferrari. And I'm not there yet, but I'm still still trying to get there. Um, and yeah, that's that's definitely where it kind of sparked the the personal development side. Um, so yeah. Yeah. So I guess. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I guess you just utilised all the spare time you had into working on yourself. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean that. That should be everyone's priority. And working on yourself as well can also include starting your own business <clears throat> in terms of the monetary terms, learning about financing, learning about banking, learning about managing your time, managing customers. So I had a few side businesses, a photo booth business at weddings that I used to do. It wasn't my business, but I was. that's what I do every weekend. I had a small gardening business, so I, you know, used my trade kind of practical skills there. So I was mowing lawns at Sunday. I was working Monday to Friday. I was doing EPCs in the evening. I was then doing a bit of gardening Saturday day. I'd then go and do a photo booth in the evening. I'd then come back and do Sunday day in the gardening and then probably be out photo booting on Sunday evening and then back in work on Monday. So I really grafted to, to get to where I was but that was a huge learning curve for me because I was it, it showed me work ethic it showed me how to, to keep going even when you think I don't want to get out of bed this morning, I don't want to do that well, you've got to because you're, you're eager to learn and, and earn money So even if jobs like gardening uh, probably <laughs> didn't enjoy them that much but I guess they showed you that you've got to work to get to where you need to be? No, definitely. I mean, a few lessons in that. So I learned how to speak to customers. I learned how to sell myself and get work. I then leveraged a few jobs out to another person that worked for me. So there was there was elements in that that I, I now apply today, but on a sort of 10x Grant Cardone kind of version. <laughs> yeah, sure. So moving on a bit, um, how important is networking to you and how big has that been in your business? So I would not be where I am today without networking. So networking has hands down been the number one key to excel in myself. So in terms of finding finance, finding deals, finding builders, finding professionals has all come from networking. So Obviously, I've met my business partner at a networking event. I've met builders at a networking event. I've met estate agents at networking events. I've met solicitors at networking events. So, attending is, you know, the old phrase is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that is 100% a key within business. Because if you go into an estate agent and they have, have absolutely no idea who you are, they're probably not going to give you the best deal that they have in that current moment in time. Whereas if you go in and it's, you know, Johnny, you've seen at the networking event, and they go, oh, hi, Scott, I remember you. It's a different sell then because you're already warm. They already know you. You've already got credibility. So networking, 100%, is 
is, has been key for me. But I must say that not everyone is getting uh, the uh, a networker. Some people might struggle with that. Some people might get anxiety about that. But I, I have to say to people, if you can get yourself out there, then 100% get out there and network because that is how you grow a business from starting from nothing. Yeah, and in terms of when you go to networking events, is there any specific things that you do when you're there or do you just try and meet as many people as possible? Yeah, so for me, I think some people go with an agenda whereas I've never really done that because I never really know what my agenda is. I always speak to someone and then find out what it is that they're doing and then try and match an agenda to, to those, to, to them. Um, so I never go there with, right, I'm going to raise finance today or I'm going to find a deal or I'm going to find a business partner. You know, I never go to networking events like that. I always sort of go with an open mind. I might be able to help someone, someone might be able to help me, but I'm here to create opportunity for myself. Yeah, so I guess you'd, it's just going to meet and make potential friends and business contacts, really. That's all it is. Yeah, yeah. 100%. That's, that's what you go to networking events for. Yeah. If, you know, you go to there to, to sell utility warehouse or Herbalife, you, you kind of go in there with an incentive and people sniff that out. Whereas if you go in there with an open mind and no real objective other to... You know, you might need to raise finance, but you know that in the back of your mind. But that's not the real reason why you've gone. You've just you go in there to meet people and, and, like I say, create opportunity for yourself and open those doors. Yeah, we know that you run your own networking event in Crew. Yeah. How did that come about, and when was the first one that you ran? So it started. I think I was asked this question the and I can't remember. So I think it's June. <laughs> Let's go with June. Okay. <laughs> um, so me and Dan Hennessy uh, we got on really well so he, he's someone that is now my friend but came through property and we often meet up and obviously we've got the connection between Connect Property Network our networking event so that sort of came back and um, came about I sort of went to Dan with the, the idea of the Connect brand and the Connect networking and he sort of said oh well I was thinking about doing a networking event as well so he was more on the Facebook scene than I was, so we kind of leveraged his marketing skills and I sort of sorted out the venue, sorted out the speakers, I sort of do the more back office stuff. And he, well, me and Zoe do the back office stuff and a little bit of Matt, and then he was more the promotional stuff, the marketing stuff, that side of it. So that's how that came about. So we had, again, different skill sets. He was good at one thing that I was not so good at, and then the, the networking came to, together really. With the event, how do you go about getting speakers for that and how many people would you say you usually get at your networking events? So getting speakers has been the easy part. So a lot of people want to promote themselves and you know speak more on, on the, the gig circuit you know and they want to get out there and, and network as well on a, on a larger national sort of scale. So finding the speakers has been the easy part. And we've had some amazing speakers, Ted Singh, Paul Nicholson, um, Adam Fuzzy, Jack Wicks, you know, just to name a few. There's so many of them and, and they all of them, we've not had one single person where I thought, oh, this is, is not so good. Everyone has been amazing in their own way. Um, so in terms of finding speakers, that's been the, the easy part. In terms of filling the room, that's been,
bringing people back. But in terms of numbers, it sort of fluctuates from 12 is the lowest that we've had, and 35, 37, 38 is the, the highest that we've had. Yeah, so is there a specific number of tickets that you sell every event? I would say the average is probably about 20, 22, 25, around that mark. I'd say yeah. the average. Do you find that you get more people that want to network with you because of the event? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm now in a position where I go to networking events and some people know me before I know them just because I've kind of leveraged myself on that platform where when speakers are coming to the the event, they are promoting the event. So people then see me linked to that event and it kind of builds that credibility. So it really has helped in terms of my networking because I'm stood at the front of the room introducing myself to people that I might not know yet and if I was attending an event I wouldn't get that exposure because I'd be sat in the crowd I'd probably speak to four or five people whereas if I'm running the event I get to speak to as many people uh, as I like. I guess that's good in terms of putting yourself out there to more people than you could if you went to a networking event that you didn't run. Yeah definitely definitely. So just moving on a bit, how is everything currently with all your projects and what projects are you currently working on? Uh, good question. So we are midway through a HMO conversion and that is a two bed to a four bed. We are moving the layout quite drastically dramatically. Uh, so the bathroom at the back of the house was a very big bathroom, it was a lot of weighted space. So we've made that a bedroom. We've then moved the bathroom, shower room into the middle of the house where we're taking a bit off the front bedroom to create a shower room. And then we're putting a WC downstairs just under under the stairs. So that's uh, the plastering is just being done now. So first fix is done, plastering is now being done. So that should be finished hopefully Friday. And then the joinery work starts to go in then. So the door frames, the architraves, the skirts, uh, we've, we've had the, the kitchen measured up, so that's ready to be delivered and orders. The windows are being fitted this week. So, yeah, we're really moving forward with, with that project. Uh, we've just had a flip. Be, it's just gone on the market. So that one uh, we purchased for 145 and it's going on the market for 220 uh, So the margins are pretty good on that one. Um, and then we've just accepted an offer on another flip that we're selling and that was purchase price 90, 95 and we're selling that for 145 and then we have another one in conveyancing ready to to go once we've um, exchanged and completed that's great they sound like some amazing projects that you've got there is there one specific strategy that you would say is your main strategy or do you focus on lots uh, of different ones this year our main strategy is doing flips so we're trying to build capital back up so we're going to do that by utilizing investor cash to put into deals and then we're going to have obviously we're a profit share at the end so the investor gets 50 percent we get 50 percent but the key for that is not actually tying up any of our capital but we're obviously putting time in and, and knowledge and the, the you know that that side of it so that's really our key strategy this year but in terms of do we have a specific strategy that we follow no because we've got 
uh, one virtual flat, we've got an SA unit, we've got HMOs and we've got flips. So we really have a variety of, of strategies. I guess it's good to have that diversification. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, going on the flip part, when you flip your houses and get that profit margin, do you split it between you or would you split a bit between you and then reinvest the rest of it into the uh, business? So it's kind of a case by case. So predominantly we are going to put a lot of it back into the business and probably take a little bit of a wage. Um, so you get a personal allowance, which is £12,000, which is tax-free. So that's what we'll be taking out of the business anyway. So whether we take actually withdraw that money is a different thing, but that's how we'll be taking a wage rather than saying, right, well, we've made 20 grand, let's, let's pay each other 10 grand. It will probably be a case of here's 20 grand, we put that back into the business, and then we're taking a wage from the business anyway and investing in more properties. So that 20 grand will just filter through the business on opportunities or paying ourselves or going into the next investment. So, in terms of tax, do you get taxed from your business and your personal wages? So, your business, so if you're self, so I'm obviously self-employed, but I have limited companies. So, I'm employed by the companies, although I'm a director, the company still employs me as a director. So, I take my wage as if you were working for, I don't know, a high street agent. So you still take your money that. The only difference is, is if you're a director, you get a dividend share. So a dividend tax is at 19%, whereas corporation tax is a little bit higher. So your £12,000 allowance is what everybody gets, whether you're a multimillionaire, whether you're working for McDonald's, you know, wherever it is, you get £12,000 tax-free every year. So withdrawing money out of your business up to 12,000 threshold is tax efficient, so everyone should be doing that. And then after that, you probably take the rest in dividends, in lump sum dividends, which is obviously 19% tax. So is there any way that you manage how you take those dividends? Is it monthly? So I'm, I'm yet to take any dividends. Oh, okay. When we're at that point, we'll, we have accountants. So this that's probably what I would say about this subject is that again relating back to don't pay for the cheapest our accountant bill is is quite expensive but it reflects the service that we receive and the tax advice that we receive so our accountants sort out everything to do with whether it was CIS tax whether it's dividend tax whether it's personal allowance you know, whatever it is those guys sort out yeah so I guess links back to having the right power team around you
playing five flips. Yeah, so with the investor part on the flips, do you use the same investors for every project or do you have a set list of investors? Um, so we have different investors. So when you go into a project with an investor, they become a business partner rather than an investor. Although they are putting the cash in, you are making decisions together, you are working together, and predominantly you have to, you need to get along. So uh, we have uh, three investors currently, so we've got uh, one investor who's local to us, he's put in a straight loan into a HMO project, so not the flip stuff. Um, we then have an uh, investor based in Basingstoke, who is an IT contractor and it's just flat out with work, so can't invest himself. And then an investor over in Switzerland that obviously can't invest in the UK because he is working over in Switzerland. So we have a, a selection of, of people. And I get along with all three of those as if they are a friend or a business partner. You know, we talk about family, we talk about life. It's not just, right, these guys are the bank, they're giving us the money, it's insensitive. It, it is very much grown on a relationship with these people as if they are my business partner and they are my friends and, and that we know each other really well. Yeah, definitely. So did you make sure that you took the necessary time to get to know your investors on a personal note before you actually asked them for funding for your projects? So that process is very quick. So you know very quickly if you can work with that investor or not. So, and, and it'll be the same for them. They will see you know, these boys have got credibility, they're doing projects already, uh, they're out there, they've got their own networking event, you know, it's, it's that credibility build, whereas with an investor, it, it, for us, it's understanding do their values match our values, is, um, is it doing a flip project something that they are looking to achieve with their cash, does it match where they currently are financially, does it match where they are with family, etc, etc, so there's a lot of things to factor in. Um, I've been offered cash by people and, and not taking it because I know that I wouldn't work well with that person. So it's understanding who you work well with because having a bad investor or bad JV partner is more hassle and more work than what it actually is worth at the end. Yeah, definitely. So just establishing the values, essentially, of both yeah, parties. definitely, definitely. Yeah, so um, we briefly spoke about your goals for 2020. Do you and the company have like a long-term goal? Is there anything that in about what five to 20 years that you really want to achieve or become? Yeah, sure. So I would like to have a portfolio of around about 100 houses in my lifetime, um, which I'd imagine will reduce for a retirement plan. But I want to build a, a large portfolio, whether it's through... And, and that's not necessarily meaning that I hold, own and hold that portfolio of 100 houses. That means that I've done five, I've done 500 flips, and I've done 200 new builds, and I've, I own 300 HMOs, sort of thing. Or you know, however it goes, that's a lot of numbers, but you know, maybe one day. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's trying to accumulate something that allows me to enjoy life with my family because predominantly that's what I want to work towards. I want to work to being able to go and watch my kids play football or go to a dress rehearsal or you know whatever it is that the kids are doing I want to be able to go there because I've worked hard now and built a passive income that I don't really need to, to do anything for the money to come in.
Yeah, so I guess essentially just having the freedom. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And being able to give my kids and my wife, probably Amy, the, the life that I always dreamt about and I kind of had a taste of. And, you know, my mum was brilliant. She always sort of gave me what I wanted to, but I want to take it to that one, one step further and really provide for my kids and, and my wife and, and my family. Yeah. If you could go back and give your younger self free tips, what would they be? Um, good question. Ooh. Um, I would probably say don't change any decision that you make. That would probably be my number one. My next one would be don't spend all your inheritance money on shit. <laughs> And the last one would probably be um, girls aren't the be-all and end-all of life. <laughs> <laughs> That's three very good tips, Scott. So I think on that note, it's a good way to end the podcast. So we want to thank you for coming on and answering all of our questions today. And is there any shout-outs or special mentions you want to give to anyone? Um, I think, firstly, you know, thank you both for, for having me on this podcast. And the, the only special shout-out really is to, to you two, because you boys are 100% doing the right thing, making the right noises, and it is only a matter of time before you start to see results. Because what the time and the effort that you're putting in to even record this podcast when you've been in school all day it is phenomenal. So if you boys just replicate this every single day and you stick together, whether you two actually go into business together or you become very good friends and, and associates, you, you boys will, will go very, very far. So just keep pushing forwards. It's not, it's, it's not easy. Be very patient and it will happen, I promise you. Thank you, Scott. That's some really kind words from yourself. Much appreciated. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast. Thank you, Scott, for coming on once again. Make sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. And we'll see you next week. Thank you very much.